do not adjust your iTunes. This is Andy doing the introduction to the Naked Scarf podcast, something that Adam has fully agreed to. I didn't have to use any chloroform. There was no pain involved. Say yes now, Adam. Yes. Okay. Yep. See? Everything's dandy. Uh, yeah. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yeah. Plot synopsis. And we're the Naked Scarf. You, might, you might want to say what episode we're doing. Oh, yeah. The story we're looking at, even. Hey, get back in your cage. Um, we are looking at uh, William Hartnell-era story, The Space Museum. And I will give you a brief plot synopsis. This involves uh, the First Doctor and his companions, Barbara, Ian and Vicky. And the TARDIS materialises on a strange planet where things aren't necessarily quite as they seem. That turns out to be a giant museum in space. Hence the very clever title. And then they spend a long time running around trying not to be turned into uh, museum exhibits. And it's actually one of the first episodes that gets a bit timey-wimey. There we go. Okay, that's quite good. Now, yes. Adam, take it away. Uh, <laughs> it's like we swapped. I don't like it. Does that mean I have to talk for 20 minutes straight while you desperately try and get appointed? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, uh, that's a look and a half. Um, oh my yes, God. I so feel quite the, the the the, the uh, general um, consensus on the space museum is good first episode, bad parts two to four. But um, I actually quite like it. I don't think it, I don't think it's a lost classic. I don't think it'll ever get into anyone's top ten or even their top twenty or probably even their top fifty. I actually, I, I think it's far more enjoyable than its reputation would suggest. Yeah, because there have been some uh, classic Who episodes that I can think of that uh, you, you are sort of egging them on to end. And I never get that with the Space Museum. It's actually an episode that I quite enjoy. It's, it's a bit silly in places and it's a bit fun and Ian's very manly and, um, and Vicky's very cute and William Hartnell hides inside a Dalek. I thought I'd get that one in there because it is this one of my, I really like that. That just, you know, he like, uh, yeah, hiding inside a Dalek and he's, he's, he's doing the little Dalek voice and, and all the rest of it. And there's no one else around. He's just doing it to amuse himself. Now I love that. That particular William Hartnell moment just makes me think of my granddad and, and uh, hence why I have a great affection for William Hartnell era who. On the DVD, there's an extra with Rob Sherman, uh, writer of Dalek and various Big Finish Doctor Who's, um, where he basically defends the Space Museum, and I feel we're going to cover a lot of the same territory. I, th I, I think the great thing about it is that everyone is actually a little bit useless. The, 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 alien, the, the alien overlords are useless and spend time making monologues about how they're bored or um, how they're not paid enough for this job, really, and they get all the blame anyway. The Rebels are possibly some of the worst Rebels ever featured in Doctor Who, Dressed a bit like beatniks, and it, when Vicky becomes your, your your revolutionary leader, you're really in trouble. Yes, I, I feel. And even even the companions after the initial, oh god, um, are we going to get trapped in those space? Are we are, are we doomed? To, is, is this our future? Is this definitely going to happen to us? We have seen the future. Oh god, can we get out of it? They, they spend all the time wandering around the museum, going, we could do this, but we could do that. But if we do that, this might happen. But if we do that, that might happen. But if we do that, this might. They literally just spend about three episodes going, we can't do anything. We don't know what to do. And everyone's just a bit pants, really. Yes, that's very true. And I'm also going to take a quick five minutes, not 20. And you can have your word in edgeways, you great yeah. bastard, um, to do a new segment, which I've just dreamed up, which is Andy's fashion spot. Um, and and uh, I'm just going to say that um, in the whole beatnik rebels versus evil overlords uh, sort of style rundown even though they are dressed like beatniks 
I think that the Rebels do win for taking style cues from Audrey Hepburn in Funny Face, even if they do have ridiculous eyebrows drawn halfway up their heads. Actually... It's like a 90s comic artist tried to draw Spock eyebrows. That's an obscure reference. I'm sure it is. And one day I might appreciate it, but in the meantime I'm quite happy living my life. Um, Yes. (laughs) They can't see that. No, luckily. Um, Yes. Um, uh, it's actually something that I uh, pointed out to Adam whilst we were watching is, is the fact that the uh, aliens in this are remarkably human basically they're people with slightly funny eyebrows on either side and they even their mannerisms are very human as well like you say they, they talk about being bored or not being paid enough or even when they're talking um, about capturing the aliens or whatever you know it's, it's never particularly or, or quite as menacing as I think that it was aiming for I do think that it was mostly just very human Yes, yeah, it, it is. I mean, the interesting thing is, if they did the story now, uh, say they still did it in four parts, you know, they'd probably keep the first part pretty much the same. But there'd be a lot more emphasis in parts two to four about what moments changed what, what stopped, what, what changed their fate. Because yes. it's a quite a nice idea that actually it's nothing that they personally do that changes their fate, but it's the way they've affected other people around them. Absolutely, that... and this is arguably one of the first properly timey-wimey episodes. Yes. Are we going to um, get sick of saying the word timey-wimey? So I'm never get sick of saying the word timey wimey, especially okay. not after that uh, YouTube clip. Oh, the wibbly acapella. Andy is referring to the acapella version of the Dot Two theme tune that we found, where somebody it's sang lyrics. Brilliant. It is pretty good. It's um, fantastic. Try and remember the version. Noting it in the show notes. I've got this terrible feeling we're not going to be talking about this one very long. Um, Ian has a very funny way of pronouncing mine at all. <laughs> Minotaur. No, no, no. I, I wrote it down because it just caught me. Militor. Mill. Mil. I, I, I thought it was Militor. I'm like, you're a teacher. Pronounce it properly. You're an English teacher. It's Minotaur. Minotaur. But maybe he was he maybe he was doing it in tribute to William Hartner, who might not have been in that episode because he does have one off. So he was deliberately fluffing his lines. Yes, but um, and this is another thing we spoke about, um, is, is the fact that uh, even though we now pick it up as a bit of a line fluff, because you don't tend to have uh, anything remotely like it in modern day episodes, um, it does help to add a sort of realism to the character. Yeah, no, I, 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 I said that, because people, are, well, personally, I'm always stumbling over my words in real life yes. and getting words mixed up. So that it's a weird thing, it's not just Doctor too. it's all drama from that time when they didn't really stop for line fluffs unless it was desperate. It does add a weird... Yeah, a kind of weird realism to it. As I was uh, saying to Adam, the thing is, is that uh, especially uh, William Hartnell, I mean, um, uh, television uh, prior to Who being aired used to be acted out live and transmitted live because yeah. they couldn't actually uh, uh, record things yeah. and, and then beam them out. And so it was very much like acting on a stage, except that if you messed up, you probably had a slightly larger audience. And and, and so they were very much trained as, as stage actors would be, I guess, to just carry on as if nothing has happened. And and it does help. Like there, there's a, it's, it's the word fluorescent that William Hartnell struggles with at one point yes it's fl- fl- fluorescent you imagine you going, bill like... bill say the word bill oh he's gone he's gone again <laughs> bill bill oh but you don't pick it up like that do you? well you do because uh, to our ears it's so strange to have any tiny mistake even though a mistake is arguably more human yes um so yes it does add a certain edge of realism to the characters G- going back a bit i saying everyone's useless in this episode and it's almost deliberate they also use the most useless gas in the world they're like we're going to gas out these people this gas will paralyze barbara and crap 
rebel number 336 and, and, and they turn this gas in and they get gas for a long time and it's to the point where they collapse and then Barbara just gets back up and keeps walking and then goes out of <laughs> the museum and it's like how effective was this like the last stock is I it, think are they just is it maybe diluted? the idea was that because she had had the handkerchief over her uh, face sorry I probably shouldn't put my hand in front of my mouth when I'm talking um, uh, the handkerchief in front of her face that perhaps she had gotten a bit less of the gas into her but no it's, it's, it's still quite ridiculous you know, um, no, if, if Putin had had his hands on that stuff, then the Moscow Theatre siege would have turned out very differently. Ooh. What? That's a, that's a bit on the edge. I'm not mocking dead people. I, I'm, I, I might be mocking Putin a little bit. I think you are bit. a little bit, but if you mock Putin, we'll be invited to a sushi bar. I think that happened. Uh, anyway. Um, no, I, I mean no disrespect. I find uh, Russian <laughs> politics absolutely fascinating, and Putin, well, I have a few choice words about him. Mr. Teflon President. <laughs> You're not making this podcast a public <laughs> declaration of support for Putin. That's not... We are not doing that in any no, no, conceivable... I'm, I'm, I'm not supporting Putin, quite the opposite. I think he's a cock. Okay, fair enough. And now he's going to come round and beat up a tiger and then probably strangle me while I sleep. <laughs> yes. Anyway, because this is the time of individual... Uh, Tite, uh, ep- episode titles, and I was r- amused to see one called The Dimensions of Time, which isn't that far <laughs> it's from... It's in no way foreshadowing. Foreshadow. Um, yes, Dimensions of Time. I have told you we're going to cover dimension, dim- Dimensions <gasps> oh, in really? Time. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's in really? the time. We'll, we'll do it in the same episode, we cover Time Crash. Okay. That'll be something for people to look forward to, won't it? I'll remember the Xanax. Isn't that the name of the alien race in this uh, story? No, it's not. That was an attempt at humour. <laughs> it was that very poor. Cool. It, it failed. It, it failed, failed entirely. Badly. You're doing badly, Clegg. And, of course, there's this whole talk about they jumped a time track, which I presume is in the reference to the 90s. So I wonder if anyone remembers the 90s American series Time Track. It's about a cop going back to the past to capture criminals that escaped from the future. It was a lot like Time Cop, but not quite. And I don't know which came first. The Sorry. Egg. Uh, quite possibly. No. <laughs> I, I have no idea, by the way. Before I get like uh, uh, an influx of angry people going, it was the chicken, you stupid bitch. <laughs> Do people get that? <laughs> Do people get that around up? It's not like you just said, my favourite Tom Baker story is Monster of Peladon. You know, it's like, <laughs> to be fair, who would get that angry about the chicken and the egg thing? Or do they? The Doctor is odd in this story, actually, in some ways. Very odd. Yes. One... Beginning of the story, they change their uh, all the clothes change, and and he's like, oh, okay, fair enough. And then later on, he in the second episode, he starts talking about the fact that Ian's lost a button, which you presume is going to come up as a plot point later somehow. Like it'll be some some really clever little thing, and it's never mentioned again. I think again. it was just his attempt at uh, explaining the butterfly effect before uh, the butterfly effect was a, a popular how, term. How did he explain it with the button? Because he was saying that something as insignificant as um, as, as losing a button could in fact alter the course of everything. But if, so, if, if you're going to bring that up, you've then got to make the loss of the button significant. You, yes, I suppose. But I, I think that it was just a similar sort of uh, uh, a metaphor. It was kind of like, you know, a, a ripples in a pond type 
butterfly flaps its wings. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if at the time they had a similar kind of thing to ex- explain it. I, I don't know if the sort of idea behind the butterfly effect was sort of widely popularised at the time. In fact, it might have been quite new around this time. So, you know, they're just trying to think of a simplistic way to explain it. Of course, these days, we, and, and, and you and I as, as later viewers of Who, would um, fully expect that to come up again as a plot point because um, that, that that's just something that happens. But I think back in the day that things did just happen and frequently did in old Who episodes and they didn't necessarily lead anywhere. No, that's true. I suppose it's easier had more episodes to fill up. Yeah, and, and the viewing experience back then was just a very different thing. People weren't expecting, you know... Um, the Spanish uh, Inquisition? They weren't expecting the same um, sort of... If, if you showed uh, modern Who to somebody who'd uh, not really caught up on the evolution of television since uh, the, the sort of earlier episodes went out, then it, it would be such a different animal in all respects, but especially in uh, the way the, the plots are uh, constructed, because uh, really all they share is their most fundamental sort of aspects, and, and, and apart from that, it's, it's very, very different. I quite like the way the Space Museum in this is basically just a really crappy tourist trap. Yes. And like no one's there, and no one turns up. I suppose you didn't have a bunch of evil alien school children turn up and then run around with, with a slightly... Um, exhausted-looking teacher, just going, don't, know, no, don't, know. hold hands, get in pairs, hold hands. See, oh. that would have been amazing. And that, they could have then played into Ian and Barbara's teacher history, and they could have taken the class. And yes, it could have, and I also like the idea of doing that from the kind of point of view that um, uh, this, this thing that's a very real danger to the Doctor and his companions is, in fact, something that we see as very mundane, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that would be a nice little spin on it. But at the same time, that's, uh, you know, this is probably over complex for a medium which actually hadn't been invented that long and and you know uh, when uh, well, TV. story yeah tv was already well it wasn't out widely it wasn't widely available in homes i mean uh, this this went out the year after <laughs> this will make you feel old some of you i'm very sorry for what i'm about to say this one went out the year after my mum was born you know and even she didn't really I, I think that when she was growing up like there were maybe one or two people on her street who had a tv and whenever something big maybe happened your they mum just grew up there. in a poor area she, uh, let's let's not get into your family history anyway we I, I do, I, yeah. It's not really a lot to say on this one, actually. In some ways, it, I don't think it's bad as reputation suggests. I think you wouldn't show it to someone you were trying to get into old who. No. This, this is something you see once once they're comfortable with it, and it's certainly not going to convert anyone to the William Hartnell era. Well, weirdly enough, actually, this is one of the first William Hartnell stories I ever saw. Oh, okay, but by that time, I already you, had... yeah, you, you're fluent in it. Probably. Yeah, well, not. Fluent. You, you familiar. I, I I could have gone on an exchange trip and ordered a sandwich. <laughs> yes. Um <laughs> But yeah, um yeah, I wouldn't you know, I wouldn't recommend it as anyone's first experience. I mean it's it's just a really bit of a shame. It's not a bad little story. Shame that the end of it leads into the chase, which yes. is uh absolutely diabolical and, and should and should be uh stricken from our records. I was gonna say something about how come they lost power of the Daleks, but they couldn't lose the chase, but then suddenly get upset because we should have all episodes of Who, which we should do, even the bad ones. But, yeah. But actually, do you think that the way the William Hartman with the Dalek doesn't in some ways undercut the Daleks a little bit? That kind of direct mocking. Is it well, not, yeah, it's it's not in some ways a little bit of a precursor to Tom Baker's line in Destiny of the Daleks about, uh, if you're the most powerful race, why don't you climb up here and get, get us or whatever that line is? 
it, it was pointed out in the um, extra that we watched again uh, that um, it, it's almost like a bit of a, a parody episode. It's, it's parodying um, it, it, what mm. who has already become. I wonder if it was deliberately parodying, though. I, 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 I mean, I, I think it, there were there's more comic moments in there than people give it credit for. I'm not sure if it was ever meant as a full-on parody. Well, okay, no, maybe not, but um, but there's perhaps a little bit of knowingness that, that maybe, they were yeah. trying to make it a bit more humorous, and that that sometimes involves poking fun at itself. Mm-hmm. And and I just I I know I've already said it. I know I've said it in several other podcasts, but I love William Hartnell inside the Dalek. I know, I know. It's, it, it's, it's like fr- a fire that burns brightly inside me and, and warms my soul from the inside out. Just watching his little laugh. I'm just thinking of all those moments people claim is their favourite Doctor moment. I think you're the only person to have ever claimed that. That's Not good. You're unique. You're an individual. People only say We're all that individuals. when they're really thinking that I'm crazy. Crazy, crazy. Sorry, this is so desperate. I'm to fill up time. I'm, I'm, I'm humming bits of songs. God, we, we should are do gonna... a big musical number. I, uh, maybe I will. Maybe I'll edit one jazz hand. I'm jazz handing right now. See if they can hear that. I'm putting my jazz hands right next to the uh, mic, but I don't know if you can hear anything. Probably not. You will be able to hear the sound of me choking him in a moment. Maybe I'll on, choke him with jazz hands. On, on, on that note, anything else to say about the story? Well, no, but I could probably say a bit more about choking you. You never know. Maybe there are a couple of fetishists in the audience. <laughs> maybe this will go over well. <laughs> Oh God! I'm ending this now. I'm right now. Right, we're stopping. I'm sorry for the uh, slightly shortened episode, but You're um, such a douche nozzle. I am a douche nozzle. Yes, and a massive douche nozzle. Is this going to be our Christmas episode? Hang on, because we, we're recording this actually. Yeah, the same... as a Christmas present, you were giving you an episode that's only about quarter of an hour long. long. Um, there you go. Let's see. I'm releasing that. No, actually, it'll be our. It'll be our. Our Sea Devils one we recorded today is our Christmas one. We never said Happy Christmas on that. However, we will say Have a Happy New Year on this one. You actually have a schedule. No, I just checked when I was going to release that and then right, release this. Right, okay. Um, Wonderful. You just uh, uh, prevented me from disowning you. Okay, so I hope everyone has a Happy New Year, uh, a great 2012. You can fi- you can contact us at the uh, on uh, you can contact us email nakedscarf at gmail dot com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Naked Scarf. You, we have a Tumblr, nakedscarf.tumblr.com. And if you go on Facebook and search for The Naked Scarf, you can find our rather lovely little um, Facebook group, which you can join and then shout abuse at us personally. Remember, guys, New Year's resolutions are for losers. Uh, do you have any New Year's resolutions you're going to be making then? Obviously not. Any Doctor Who related uh, New Year's resolutions? Well, no, but at some point it is on my bucket list to watch them all in chronological order, and I think you might have given me that idea, but the problem is is that first I have to sit down and sort them out into chronological order. I think, oh, when you say chronological order, do you mean my idea of watching them when they take place in the history of the universe? Yes. Yeah, so it's just like if watching like a story from, that takes place in 1960, then one takes not watching them in the chronological order. Yeah, yeah, day, yeah, the, that, that is The airing mean. order. Yeah, I, 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 but I think that would send us mad, but we should try and do it one day. One day. One day. One, one day. Year. Well, one year. One, one lifetime. Um, but anyway, yeah, so uh, until 2012, take care, folks.
again in the future. A time machine called Tracks. Criminals who vanish. And a lawman who must pursue into the past. Now he's among us. A special breed of man. He has one weapon and a computer named Selma. Good morning, Captain Lambert. With her, he will travel through our world, searching for fugitives from his own, knowing he cannot go home until he has found them all. His name is Darian Lambert, and this is his story.